Good morning, church. Will you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father God, we ask this morning that you would come now by your living Holy Spirit and revive, refresh, renew us. Illuminate, as only you can, the gift of your saving and keeping gospel truths to our wayward hearts and wandering minds. We need you. I need you to focus our attention on Jesus and his good, good, good news. Be pleased to expose and reveal to us exactly what you know we need to hear, understand, and believe this morning. Transform each of us, Father God, more and more and more into the character an image of your Son, our Savior and King. There is no one higher, Jesus Christ. We pray in his holy and precious name, amen. This morning, I am preaching from a one-hit wonder, a one-chapter wonder found in the New Testament. It's a short letter, only 25 verses. And it's a letter that didn't want to be written, as you will soon see. But God knew his church would need it not only in their early years, but in the later ones as well, including ours, he knew they would need it. And so, and so, God compelled the author to put it down in writing. Our text this morning is from the letter, the little letter titled Jude. Why Jude, Chuck? Not hey Jude. Why Jude, Chuck? You might ask. Is it because Paul McCartney just happened to be in town this weekend performing at Campers World Stadium last night? of which I got a video from Brandy Nix of Jude, the chorus of Jude. Wow, is that why? Nope, though it did make for a cool sermon title. Thanks, Brandy. It's Jude because God is teaching me the relevance of his timeless word, particularly in view of the contemporary belief system called progressive Christianity which I've come to understand is not too progressive and it's not too Christian. Yet it continues to gain popularity with, within certain Christian circles. Is it Jude? Because it's Jude. Because the Lord led me to this little letter, which just so happens to speak volumes about the issue of ungodly influencers, false teachers, not without, but within the church. And it's Jude because the gospel of grace takes center stage from beginning to end. So first, let's look at this New Testament book and see how it's organized. For time's sake, I'm not going to read the entire letter nor teach on every verse. I will, however, try to cover the general content of the letter. So here's the outline. Jude's letter can be divided into five sections, the author and audience, the appeal, the argument, the admonition, and the assurance. I'll be focused mainly uh, on the beginning and the end of the letter while summarizing the middle, the argument contact, content, because it's primarily illustrative, soberingly so, as to the urgency of the main appeal in verses 3 and 4. So would you please stand now for the reading of God's holy word. Let's read it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were, de were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now jumping down to verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then, and then finally, uh, you may not have realized that you knew a verse out of uh, Jude, but you're going to recognize this, most of us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So let's jump into our text. This is kind of a deep dive, so pray for me. Here we go. Let's jump in. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The author identifies himself in his opening address with three descriptors. First, he gives us his name, Jude, which is a shortened form of the names Judas and Judah, Jude. Then he gives us a vocational title of sorts, if you will, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us an, a, a relational tie to a famous church leader, and he says, and brother of James. The brother of James is the half-brother of Jesus, who wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but was the well-known James who served as the leader of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem during the middle of the first century. So with these three pieces of information, we can surmise that the Jude who has written this letter, is the fifth son of Mary and Joseph. Yes, that Mary and Joseph. Did you know that Jesus' family of origin consisted of likely eight or nine people? It's a big family, with a total of five sons and likely two daughters. Mark 6, 3 tells us of Jesus' family of origin. It says, is not this, is not this the carpenter, speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Plural, sisters. And that's interesting because the Gospels tell us that Jesus' four brothers didn't believe in his divine identity or his divine purpose until after the resurrection. In fact, at one point they come to where Jesus is and they're there to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. So have you ever thought your siblings were out of their mind? 
Have they ever thought you were out of your mind? Maybe so. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, all of his brothers had a change of heart. They had a conversion. And not the least of which was our man, our author this morning, Jude. He's the Judas, short for Judas, Jude, in Jesus' family of origin. So let's look at what Jude was writing. Let's look at who Jude was writing to. Who's his audience? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude had this penchant for putting things in threes throughout his letter. He just loved to do that. He, you know, he's precursor to Presbyterian preachers, I suppose. So, who's this letter to? It's to those who are called, beloved, and kept. I, I don't want you to miss this. But he describes those to whom he writes with three descriptive verbs, called, beloved, and, blessed, and kept. And there are two things I want you to know about verse 3. It's oozing with gospel goodness. First, I want you to know that these three verbs in the Greek are all passive. They're passive. What does that mean, Chuck? I have to keep looking it up myself, so don't worry. That means that the subject of the verbs is not doing the action, but instead the subject is being acted upon by something outside itself, by someone outside itself. So, who are the subjects of these verbs? If you look back up at the verse, it's to those who are called. Those. It's those people. So the subject in this verse are those people, and they are called, loved, and kept. So the second thing I want you to realize is that these three actions are being done to them. They are being called or have been called. They're loved and they're kept. So the second thing I want you to see is who is the someone that is doing the calling or has done the calling, done the loving, and done the keeping for those people. It's the triune God himself. Now, he doesn't say it in the verse, but I think it can be strongly inferred. We have called by the Holy Spirit, loved in God the Father, kept for, and that sometimes that word is sometimes translated by, Jesus Christ. Jude's addressing Jewish believers, converts into the new covenant gospel of Jesus, and he wants them to be reminded that they're already called, loved, and kept by the almighty triune creator and sustainer God. It seems that Jude believes that if they will remember God's collective and cooperative Trinitarian action upon themselves, that they will be more secure to face the challenges and difficulties in their lives. And as it turns out, Jude is about to tell them that they are heading into danger. So here's Jude's appeal. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So here we learn that the letter we have in the Bible was not the initial letter Jude really wanted to write. He wanted to write something else. He wanted to write to Christians about their common faith and salvation. That's what he wanted to write. But he was compelled. He was compelled by an issue, an issue in the church in that day. Now we're talking about Jude. He was in Jesus's family of origin, a contemporary of Christ, a contemporary of the apostles. And he's already writing about an issue in the church that he's really concerned about. 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you. So here comes the main point of the whole letter is this appeal. And it's not just to the believers of Jude's day, but it really goes out to all believers, which includes many of us. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So this Greek verb to contend for, you know, it means to strive earnestly. It means to fight for. Um, it actually is rooted in Greek word that's connected with the ideas of hand-to-hand -hand wrestling or hand-to-hand -hand combat. So here's Jude challenging the believers in the first century. They need to be prepared. They need to be prepared to contend, to fight for the faith. So what does Jude mean here by the faith? Contend for the faith. The word faith has a, both a subjective and an objective meaning. The subject meaning is sometimes when we talk about our faith, we're talking about this sense that we're confidently assured. We, we believe something strongly. We are convicted. So there's this subjective faith, that inner sense. But then there is also the use of the word, the same word faith in scripture that refers to an objective aspect of faith. And that refers to the articles of faith, the propositions of truth that one puts and places his or her faith in. These objective propositional truths about God, about Jesus, about what he's come to do. So there's an, a subjective and an objective element. It's interesting in Hebrews 11, faith is described as this. I never saw this before. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You know, talk about a deep theological word, things. I didn't go back and look that up very much. But I did think that it was interesting that hope is described in Hebrews 11, and there's two components, right? Two keys. There's the inner sense of assurance and conviction, and then there are the things hoped for and not seen. If an enemy, say, wants to pull a faithful person away from their faith, here are two points of attack. The enemy can attack the subjective part of your faith, uh, one's sense of assurance and conviction, or the enemy can attack the objective aspect of your faith, the things, the propositional truths that you're hoping in, that you cannot see, but you believe. So Jude is appealing to the church that the believers be on alert and be prepared to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. Now listen, since the subjective sense of faith and internal awareness and conviction of a person, since that can ebb and flow, right? It ebbs and flows from day to day, sometimes from hour to hour. Since that can ebb and flow, it would seem that what Jude is mostly talking about here when he speaks of the faith is the objective articles of faith, the doctrines, the propositional truths of the gospel. It is these propositional truths that were delivered, that were handed down to us from God through the person of Jesus. His truth claims, his works of a perfect life lived, his atoning death in our place, his victorious resurrection. These truths weren't thought up or devised by man. These core truths were gift deposited, like a gift, like a, like a FedEx guy knocks on your door and you open it and he hands you something. It's delivered. And what do you do? Or what can you do? You receive it. And that seems to be what Jude is referring to here when he talks about the faith. 
at just the right time, Jesus came into the world, shared his teachings, did his miracles, and paid the atoning price for our sins. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So let's look on at verse 4 and see the urgency of Jude's appeal. Why did he not write the letter he wanted? Why did he feel so compelled? Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So infiltrators have already snuck into the early church. <laughs> already. Infiltrators. Under the guise of believing what the apostles believed. But they actually and secretly do not. With the boast, listen, with the boast of a different but better gospel, with the boast of a different but better understanding of these doctrines, they redefine the core essentials and seek to undermine God's authoritative words in order to do two things, Jude tells us. One, pervert the gospel so that it permits and even encourages hypersensuality, immoral sexual behavior. So pervert the gospel so that it allows and even encourages sensuality. And two, deny the person of Jesus as the one and only ultimate authority over all, over everyone, and over everything. So what Jesus and the apostles warned was coming has indeed come. What Peter warns the church is coming, Jude writes in his epistle, they're here and they're in and you need to contend for the faith. The wolves are in the sheep pen. How'd they get in? By claiming to have true faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. How do they threaten the faith? by subverting it, altering the essential truths so this new and improved, better, more kinder, gentler, tolerant gospel is no gospel at all and doesn't have the power to save. So Jude lays the grounds for his appeal. The faith is an identifiable set of good news, news, information, propositional truths that when trusted, look, even Satan knew the propositional truths. He believed that Jesus was God. He knew the propositional truths, but had he entrusted himself to them? Absolutely not. So this faith, this identifiable set of information, when trusted for oneself, has the power under eternal life, which makes it very, very good news for us as believers. So look, there's evidence in the early church that there was already a very clear set of propositions as seen in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It was in one of my previous sermons in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, Paul says this. He inscripturates an oral creed in scripture in 1 Corinthians. For I delivered, and notice the word delivered, it shows up again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's Paul doing? He received and now he's delivering. It's not Paul's. He's passing it on. And here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelfth. 
So we see that as soon as there were people, those people who began trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, and King, there was this understanding that saving faith included both the subjective inner sense of faith and the objective things that a person of faith hoped for and could not see with their eyes. These things are the truths that Jesus brought through his words and actions, objective truth claims that a believer receives and applies and accepts to his heart and to his lives. I want to draw your attention, it's not on a slide, but John 14. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So what is he doing? He's, he's stating a truth claim. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And what does he say? Believe me when I say that. Then he says, then he says this. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. So this brings us to the question. What are those essential objective truth claims we need to contend for? In her book called Another Gospel, which speaks to the issue of progressive Christianity, Alyssa Childers includes a list of essential core truths based on the work of the late American theologian Norman Geisler. So here's the list. The essential New Testament doctrines of saving faith, yes, according to Norman Geisler, but we know there is a set, right? And one, one theologian may have eight, one theologian may have nine, but look at these, look at Geisler's eight. Number one, human depravity, the doctrine of human depravity, that every human being is fallen. As long as we are under the first Adam, we are corrupted to the core, from head to toe. We cannot please God. We cannot know God. We cannot do anything that honors God. And what comes out of that? The declaration that I'm a sinner, right? Second, God's unity. There is only one God. There is one God. He is a triune God, yes. One God, three persons, hard to explain. But there's one God. There is one God. Three, the necessity of grace. I am saved by grace. I'm not saved by my good works. I'm not saved by human effort. I don't pull myself up by my bootstraps and get to God. I am only saved by undeserved favor. The undeserved favor of God poured out on me. Four, Christ's deity. Jesus is God. Five, Christ's humanity. Jesus is man. Hard to put those two together. How can you be 200% of something? But he was. Six, Christ's atoning death. Christ died for my sins. Substitutionary penal atonement. He died in my place. He took my punishment. And he died for my sins. And he died in my place. And if I put my trust in him, I don't have to die that death. Seven, Christ's bodily resurrection. Christ rose from the dead. And eight, the necessity of faith. I must believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ for myself. So, Jude's urging believers to contend for the faith because there are ungodly influencers in the church. Ungodly influencers in the church. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Listen. Wolves in shepherd's clothing. Mm. That's what Jude's warning about. There's wolves in sheep's clothing. There's also shepherds in sheep's clothing. Be careful. All right. And their false teachings, where do they lead? Whoa, this brings us to his argument. Why is he so urgent about 
challenging and appealing the church to contend um, because historically speaking, the results of such behavior, it's condemnation and eternal judgment. So let's look at Jude's argument. This is the section we didn't read. In verses 5 through 16, Jude is describing the ungodly influencers and he likens them, he likens the ungodly influencers within the church in his day, he likens them to seven illustrations out of the Old Testament scripture and even a couple extra biblical uh, literature. He likens them using these seven illustrations. All of the people in these illustrations, they've perverted the faith for selfish gain and they've denied God's authority and so became liable for eternal condemnation and judgment. In verses 5 through 16, Jesus uses seven illustrations. I want to show you very in summary form what these seven are. We're not going to spend time here. You could. It would be awesome. It's pretty interesting, but we can't. Seven. First one, Israel in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness. You remember what Moses found when he came down off Mount Sinai? <laughs> what are the people doing? They're reveling, quote unquote. They're misbehaving. They're pursuing their sensual desires, doing it in front of a golden calf. <laughs> Didn't take them long. 40 days, comes down. That's what they're doing. They kept complaining, take us back to Egypt. Take us back to Egypt. We want to go back to our gods in Egypt. What did God do? He gave them what they wanted. He allowed them to worship the gods of Egypt and they all died in the wilderness except for two. Second one, rebel angels. This is a little interesting. Genesis 6, the Nephilim. Ah, it's interesting. The possibility that rebel angels went outside of God's boundaries and had sexual relations with human women. Jude uses that as an illustration. What happened to those, what happened to those angels? They are locked up, chained in outer darkness forever. Sodom and Gomorrah. You're a little bit more familiar with that story. What happens in this story? Well, an immoral lifestyle has taken hold in Sodom, right? Based on sensual desires, hypersensual desires. And angels visit Lot. And the men of the city want to have sexual relations with the angels. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? Utterly destroyed and condemned by God. The fourth one, interestingly, Archangel Michael having a conversation with Satan over the dead body of Moses. This does not come out of scripture. This comes out of a book called The Testimony of Moses. You've got to remember, the Jews, they were deeply steeped in literature. They had many books. Right, Scott Huber? They had many books. Scott likes books. Progressive Christians talk about the early, the, the early Christians not, you know, that, that it was an oral tradition and they, they shared things orally all the time and things got mixed up and they had different traditions. What is Jude doing here? He's turning to very well-known literature, Jewish literature, that spoke highly of the scriptures. So I could stand up here and quote who? I could quote per Spurgeon and Morning and Evening, or, you know, I could, spoke, I, could, I could quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's not scripture, you know, but we do that, right? We use 
other literature to quote and make points and illustrations about Scripture. So that's what he's doing here. What happened with the Archangel Michael and Satan? Satan wanted Moses' body. Moses, <laughs> Moses had died. The reason he wanted Moses' body, because Moses was a murderer, therefore Satan gets to take him. <laughs> the arch, archangel, archangel Michael ha- would have nothing of it. But here's what's interesting. It says in this text that Michael would not speak judgment over even Satan. Why? Because he respected God's absolute authority structure. And he says, he quotes even to Satan, the Lord will judge you. How many times have I judged people and even said judging things about people? It's like, here's an angel who refuses to judge Satan. The Lord will judge you. So it's just an acknowledgement of this amazing authority structure that exists. Uh, Cain's way, the, the last three, Cain's way, Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion. Wow. Cain killed his brother. Why? Because he was faithless. Some people say he killed his, God didn't accept the sacrifice, right? They both had to bring a sacrifice. God accepted Abel's, didn't accept Cain's. Some people say, well, it's because Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. Doesn't seem to jive. When you look at all of the Old Testament sacrifices that God ordains, there's animal sacrifices, there's grain sacrifices, you know. So probably what it is, is because Hebrew 11 puts puts Abel in the hall of faith, it says Abel offered his sacrifice with faith. So probably what's happening here is Cain didn't offer his sacrifice with faith. He was just going through the motions. And God didn't accept it. Then he gets angry, kills his brother. So Cain's way is violence. He goes on to build cities. They're known for their violence. Balaam's error. Balaam was a prophet of God. And a foreign king asked Balaam to curse Israel, and he couldn't do it. (laughs) He couldn't do it. But what he could do, he did kind of find, finally came up with a way. He decided that he would, he would give this king a strategy to bring Israel down. Hey, if you send your prostitutes into, the, into Israel, into their camps, they'll have sex with them, and then God will be angry, and he'll curse Israel. So here you have a prophet of God urging, tempting the people of God to sin against God. And Balaam, Balaam's error. He's judged. Korah's rebellion. Interesting story. Korah's going against the authority of Moses, going against the authority of God's leaders. And what happens? The story's amazing. God shows up amongst the people. They're out in the wilderness. So, okay, everybody that's for Moses, get over here. Everybody that's for Korah, get over here. And then the ground opens up. All those people fall in, the ground closes. Done. Whoa. Whoa. So, the end result of all these rebels in Jude's argument is ultimately God's condemnation and eternal judgment. Whoa. So these illustrations help convince us that we must contend. Believers must contend for the good news of saving faith because there are ungodly influencers. These ungodly influencers, they distort the gospel truths for self-gratification and they render a false gospel that can't save. They live unrestrained, self-consumed lives, gratifying their lusts and appetites, leading to destructive, perverse, immoral behaviors for themselves and others. And they are possibly destined for eternal destruction, eternal damnation. So, now Jude's admonition to the believer. His admonition is this in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly, godless, ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Jude encourages believers to remember and know the Scripture, especially the prophecies about false teachers in their midst. Can I just refer back to those seven illustrations? Exodus, Genesis 6, Genesis 19, Genesis 4, Numbers 23 through 24, Numbers 16. Are you familiar with Cain? Are you familiar with Balaam? Are you familiar with Korah? Are you familiar with God's story? I was challenged in preparing this sermon. How do you contend for the faith? One of the ways is to remember the word. Do you know the word? Are you familiarizing yourself daily with God's story from Genesis to Revelation? It's a challenge to me. I need to be in the word. One preacher is preaching on this text said, here was his application. You need to be in the word. How much more? How long are you in the word this week? You need to be in the word more next week and just more. So if you read the Bible five minutes a day, read it for eight. You with me? More. The Apostle Peter. Here's what he says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Whoa. And then Jesus predicted in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, a reference to eternal judgment, hell. And then Jude continues with further instructions on how to contend for the gospel faith. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So how are we to practically contend? Here's what's interesting. In the beginning of the text, he talks about how we're kept by God. In the benediction which we read, he also refers to the fact that God keeps us and will present us blameless. Both of those are God's work on us. God will preserve you. God will keep you. But in this life that we're called to live by faith, you need to work on keeping yourselves in the love of God. And there's four ways to do it. The first is remember the Bible. Are you reading it? Do you know its story? If you don't, read it. I have a comic book Bible. I like it. I can read the whole Old Testament in a short amount of time. It's not bad to do that. I also listen to the Bible in an app. It's cut up in pieces every day. I listen while I walk, while I run, while I sleep. <laughs> yeah. Remember your word. Second, build yourselves up in the holy faith. Build yourselves up. Here's what's interesting. The building, praying, and waiting, all of those are supportive of the main imperative in this last section, which is keep 
yourselves in the love of God. So does God love you? Yes. Does he hold you? Yes. But what are you called to do in this life? You're called to work at keeping yourself in the love of God. How? By being familiar and reading and meditating on God's word, right? And how do you build yourself up in the faith? You build yourself up in the faith by rehearsing the gospel, preaching yourself the gospel every day, telling yourself the gospel, talking to other believers about the gospel, coming to church and singing songs that tell us the gospel. You need to immerse yourself in the gospel truths. Build yourself up. Third, praying in the spirit. What does that mean? I don't want to pray all day long. It says I got to pray ceaselessly. I don't got time for that. It's not what he means. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit? He lives in you. Whoa, he dwells in you. You can have a conversation in the back of your mind all day long with God because he's there and he wants that. He wants you to have an intimacy with him. I'm reading this book with my mentor, Brother John, and he's encouraging me to read this book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And it's simple. It's so simple. He basically says, hey, God is always with you. So act like it. Converse with him all the time. Ask him for help all the time. Be with him all the time. Be mindful that he's there all the time. That's like, that's what the whole, the whole book is about. And I remember telling John, I remember going, John, it's like, God, it's so simple. It's so important because I'm so easily distracted. <laughs> I forget. I leak. Remember the word. Build yourself up in the holy faith. Praying in the spirit. Waiting with the hope of for the with the hope of Christ's return. You listen, as a believer, Christ's return is a is a is a nice, is an awesome, is an exciting event that's coming. We we it's we look forward to that, right? But for the non-believer, for the false teacher, and we should have mercy on those who don't understand how good it's gonna be. We should have mercy. We should have mercy. So I want to read you this quote. Um, Milton Vinson wrote this. He said, it's a daily battle. It is a daily battle to believe the full scope of the gospel, of it, the gospel, as I should. It is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the foreboding of my conscience, the condemning of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings in the gospel. Overwhelm those three things. Wow, those three things are powerful. How do you contend? You overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. We must overwhelm them. So, so we need to stop. So how does contending for the faith affect your reaction to those who are swayed by false teachers? How are we to contend for the sake of others who are confused and misled? Verse 22 and 23, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who are confused about the gospel. It's interesting, have mercy. Mercy means not getting the punishment you deserve. That means the only way you could ever extend mercy to someone is if they've wronged you first. Isn't that interesting? And God wants us to be dispensers of mercy. That means we need to be willing to put ourselves out there and be in situations where, 
we're offended and where we're wronged and where we're mistreated. Not a doormat. Why are we there? Why are we doing that? So that we might save some. So that we might save some out of the fire. They're actually on fire. I like that illustration. Save them. They're on fire. Can you save somebody that's so close to the heat that they're on fire? Yes. But be really careful. <laughs> be really careful. Do that with great discernment. Do that with prayer support. Don't do that alone. But we're called to do that. We're called to put ourselves out there. How did we come to Christ? Were we once a false teacher? Were we once someone who spewed things that weren't true? Reminds me of Peter's admonition to the church in 1 Peter 3.15. He says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. That's kind of what Jude is saying too. And it's interesting because Jude and Peter apparently had a relationship. They were friends. They at least knew very well of each other's teaching. You know why? Because there's a section of Jude and a section of 2 Peter that are almost identical. Somebody knew and used the other's writing. We're not quite sure who. That's cool. That's cool. So this brings us to the close of the letter, the benediction, which I'm going to share after we sing. And I just want to remind you, the benediction closes with assurance. Assurance that you are kept. Assurance that he can present you blameless. What? How can Christ present me blameless before God when he returns? Because I'm covered in his blood. That's how. Covered in his blood. I put my faith in the propositional truths. I've committed my heart to him relationally. And he's got me. So the beginning is assurance. The end is assurance. Why do we need that? Because God has called us to live in a dangerous world. And he's called us to do dangerous things, but to do it with confidence and to do it with security and to stand up for the gospel and to name the name of Jesus, right? And to spend time with people you might not otherwise like to spend time with, but why? Because you're swayed by how they live and you kind of like their loose, you know, their loose, no. You spend time with them prayerfully because you want to possibly have the opportunity to give a defense of what you believe about Jesus Christ and they may come out of the fire, into the family of God through the power of the gospel of grace. Pray with me. Father, thank you for Jude. What a little letter. What a powerful, potent, pithy little letter. 25 verses, but it's oozing. It's oozing with truth. So Father, would you apply this to our hearts? Would you teach us how to contend? Would you help us to remember, to build, to pray, and to wait Teach us, build these skills into us, Father. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you that we are called, loved, and kept this morning. Father, be glorified in and through us as we live in this difficult, broken world, Father. Use us, use even us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.